you only lose what you cling to. This is a quote by Buddha. Why then do we cling to our wealth and our possessions and why is giving so difficult? Hello and welcome to my podcast, Unapologetically KK. My guest today is Gaurav Sinha, who's an entrepreneur and author and uh, has just written a book called Compassion Inc., Unleashing the Power of Empathy in Life and Business. Hello, Gaurav, and welcome to Unapologetically KK. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on. It's such a pleasure. You talk about a lot of things that people are talking about now, which is basically giving back and running an organization with the intention to give back. I've read your book and I want you to talk to us about what brought you to this this point in life where you started thinking about all of these things. You know, there's no one particular reason that prompted me to write the book. I think, um, you know, I'm a brand strategist who looks at decoding human aspirations and then coding brand narratives. That's mm-hmm. what I do for a living. And um, I realized both as a brand strategist and as a father, in a way, that maybe I was the monk who was selling Ferraris and not necessarily the monk who sold his Ferrari. Right. And uh, this is the reason for this is um, twofold. I think um, one is, you know, we live in a world today which has a, a tremendous amount of deficit in truth, transparency and trust. Right. You know, we don't trust our government. We don't trust our doctors. We don't uh, believe the news we listen to. And, um, you know, and, and brands usually make promises that are hollow. And I didn't want to be part of that problem. I wanted to drive change by creating brand narratives that were more authentic and meaningful. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what uh, first made me look at the, the one dimension was how do you create businesses that are more meaningful and not just driven by profit. Mm-hmm. The second was, um, if you think about society today, we live in what I call the same principles of deficit, uh, where we are riddled with what I call uh, debt capitalism. Uh, yes, we, and I see some numbers and statistics in your book where you're talking about debt being over $10 trillion. That's correct. And, and you know, the numbers change so rapidly and... What's more important is the way we consume. I think we, we, I don't think capitalism is broken. And I don't think companies are broken. But I think consumption is broken. Right. I think how we consume as human beings today, we spend our money um, mindlessly on, you know, whether it's fast fashion or material gratification or buying products and experiences without necessarily thinking through whether we can afford them. So, you know, this is part of this, that the tyranny of, of, of the speed at which we consume is also impacting the way, uh, you know, um, it's, it's affecting the planet, it's affecting people. Right. And, and I think, how do you mitigate that? How do you find some level of a balance, some sort of a middle way of saying, you know what, I have to protect in the interest of self-preservation. I have to save money as much as I need to spend money. Mm -hmm. And similarly, as companies, how do I sort of tilt the conversation from profit to prosperity? Yes. And I think that's what the book sort of attempts to do. It gives you a guide if you're a business owner 
then how to create a business that is future-proofed. Mm-hmm. And if you're a consumer, it sort of um, calibrates a conversation on how you need to create uh, a more meaningful way of consuming yes. goods and experiences without necessarily you know, denying yourself uh, the simple pleasures of life. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things that I have been listening to repeatedly is that things are out of control, whether it is overconsumption, we're talking about climate change, you're talking about debt, you know, it is the numbers are staggering. And obviously, we haven't gotten here overnight. And we're not going to solve these problems overnight. And, and uh, what a lot of the people are saying is that we have to start somewhere. We have to stop thinking someone else is going to do it or the governments are going to do it and it's not my problem. So how do you convert these businesses that you work with to start thinking about giving back rather than just profitability? So if you think about it, if you think, you know, what is the definition of culture? A culture is a set of shared beliefs that drives natural behavior. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you change culture? That's, I think, the bigger question here. And, and in order to drive change in culture, you have to recalibrate the vocabulary of how value is communicated between people. Um, you know, culture in capitalism, like in any other context, is also what I call a cognitive prison. Mm-hmm. You are you're locked within a framework that is um, the vocabulary that we use in order yeah. to convey and communicate to each other. So how you and I are speaking today, in a way, is going to be understood by others mm-hmm. because we use a vocabulary which is going to be, which will have a degree of resonance right. as, as received by the, by the listener. So the obligation we have is to change the language of business. Yes. Is how we communicate what is the distinction between success and happiness. Yes. And I think these are the things that I try and drive. So when you say, how do we do that? Number one, you lead the change. You have to demonstrate and live by example. So if you're a company, you start that with the chief executive officer. Mm-hmm. In my book, I talk about CEOs being retitled to chief empathy officers. Yeah. And the, C, the empathy component is about driving the values of a company and an organization and trying to define what is their higher purpose. In a similar way, I think we have an obligation as consumers also to change the way we communicate what gratification means. Mm -hmm. So from that point of view, I personally believe changing the language of how we communicate, how whether there are aspirations, our desires and needs, or the promises we make as a company, I think we need to recalibrate that and make them more meaningful. I'm a big believer that you don't need an MBA to figure out how to create success in life. Of uh, you know, you, you I, I believe that good human values mm-hmm. make profound business values. But surely you have faced resistance from your clients. And I read, I read in your book that you was when you first started working in the hospitality industry, and obviously it's about luxury, it's about experience, and you're talking about people who earn very little providing these experiences to people who earn a lot more. And the ones who are providing those experiences are probably never going to experience those. Yeah, we are, we are hypocrites like this, I think, as consumers. We have to be in a capitalist world. Any person out there who believes he's, self, he's conscientious through 365 days a year, 
you know, and 24 hours a day. I think I think there's a certain hypocrisy in the way we consume. Mm -hmm. You know, you 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 claim to be a connoisseur or a gourmand, and you go out there and you consume a beautiful steak and you have an indulgent meal, and you're completely oblivious to the front line of hospitality, which in principle will never be able to sit at the same table and pay for the same meal in a similar way. So how do you balance that? I don't think it's about giving up eating a good steak. I think you, if you enjoy good food, please go ahead and do so. I think, I think it's a question of finding balance. Right. I think it's moderation. And when I talk about monastic materialism mm -hmm. as one of the things that I've termed in the book, and monastic materialism is born as a, as a sort of uh, a path that is aligned to the Eightfold Path of Buddhism, which sort of sort of it points right. towards uh, towards finding the right intentions, the right ways to go about doing things. And in this book, I've also coined something called the Edifying Essentialities, which is sort of a fourteen point checklist, which says if you are able to align to these values, then in principle, you're entitled to indulge yourself in, in pretty much anything you want to do. Mm -hmm. And and I think these are the hallmarks that we need to embrace as as we create more distinction for ourselves through the journey of life. And uh, and similarly, I think business owners need to re recognize that there is a, what I call the rise of a new wave of consumption uh, driven by a new breed of consumers who I call altruistic aesthetes. Mm -hmm. These are people who believe in giving back, but also like fine things. Yes. So how do you align to them is, is also a very important part of our narrative. And, uh, and I think, you know, we need neo-capitalistic beliefs. I don't think we need to become socialists. I don't think, I don't think it's a question of wealth and welfare being a debate uh, as a mutually exclusive issue. I think wealth is a driver of welfare. So without wealth, I don't think you can have welfare. Mm -hmm. um, and from the same point of view, I think altruistic capitalism can embody some of the the finer points and the and the beautiful parts of what conscientious capitalism can do in order to drive uh, positive impact. But when you first think about, as I said, I have met a lot of people who have the intention, who have the, I guess, the emotion to, to give back, but things get in the way, life gets in the way, they, they need to pay their own bills, they need their life to go on. And I think you do need to stop and say, okay, I'm, this can't just be a thought. And, and that's what you're saying. I'm talk, you are talking about the balance a lot in the book. And I want to say that for somebody who is having that thought, how, what is the first thing they can do? I think, you know, it's important to recognize this is not about martyrdom. You know, I think cha charity begins at home. You mm -hmm. water your own garden first, you know. So I think, first of all, you have to fortify your own personal economy. Yeah. I think that's your first obligation. You know, the, they, in India, they've always said the best way to help the poor is by not being one of them. Absolutely. So, so I think first you start by, by you know, calibrating your own your your own finances and making sure that you don't fall into debt. I think that's the fundamental obligation you have to yourself in the interest of self-preservation. So don't whip out that credit card and buy yourself a Chanel handbag, knowing fully well that, you know, you're living a life based on based on monthly installments. I think who wants to live like that? Exactly. I think, I think there's a certain there's a certain shallowness in that, which is, in my opinion, worth scorning upon. Uh, and there's a certain milit militancy in my narrative about that because I've also seen a lot of young people fall into debt trying to keep up with the Joneses, whether it's buying watches, cars or meals. And, and I don't think that's a virtuous way of living your life. Uh, so how does it all start? It starts with simple, small steps. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, you know, 
you know, goodwill, you know, is, 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 is not that hard to transfer, provided you are able to define things or, or relate to things that are close to you. I've always said that the way the world functions today, you know, there is the convertibility, the universal convertibility of goodwill is very difficult to manage. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very easy for us to transfer money from uh, Mumbai to Manila, but it's very hard to transfer your goodwill from yes. one person to another. Absolutely. And, and what we need to do is create a currency of goodwill. And that currency of goodwill is born through every gesture and move we make. Uh, it's, it's the choices we make, the way we consume. And I think there are lots of brands out there with whom you can align, you can consume things which are, which are more conscientious, whether they're conscientious towards the planet or towards the people. I think, and you know, capitalism is driven by demand. If you stop demanding $250 uh, sneakers, you'll find that the world will gear up to provide you wonderful $60 sneakers, which do exactly the same job and also provide shoes to, you know, people without any. I, I totally agree because one of the things that stood out uh, in the book where you say high society or hollow society, and that has become a huge issue in today's world that people feel the need to keep up appearances to to project a lifestyle that they can't afford and uh, that's becoming a huge problem with with how we are consuming things because we feel or we 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 feel we're being told that this is the sign of success this is what success means it means a chanel bag it means first class tickets it means living in you know these exotic holidays and and you what you're saying is that we need to move away from that and, and live an authentic life first ourselves and be debt free. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think success is about creating value, not consuming value. Mm -hmm. You know, I think I think today society rewards and defines success. The more you can consume, the, the the more successful you are. You know, a bigger house, a bigger car, a better watch, new phone. I think these things don't define success. I think to, and this is what is part of the the issues I have. You know, in the way governance and and corporations are even taxed. So, if you think about it, you know, I think I think we should be applauding not the man in the red Ferrari, but the person in the garage who's defining, trying to come up with renewable renewable. Uh, solutions for energy. I, right. think, I think there is, I think those who create value are the true wealthy. Yes, I it agree. It is not the you. ones who consume. Absolutely. So, so I think there is something to be said about starting that as a conversation amongst others and celebrating those people. Popular culture doesn't allow you to do that. Listen, we celebrate the Kardashians and whatever else on, on TV, watching mindless, morbid, car crashes of lives and, and think that that makes for entertainment. Mm -hmm. So I think uh, as much as the nepotistic, sycophantic world that we want to embrace and, and, and the language and the vocabulary we want to align ourselves to, I think you've got to look at yourself in the mirror and realize, you know, there's this hypocrisy if you want to drive change begins with you. And that could mean taking care of anyone within a 10 feet radius of you or anything which is close to your heart, whether it's a cause of any sort. And I think charity is not about money. It's about making time. It's about aligning yourself. I think being patient, being a good listener, that is also a charitable trait today. Right. Um, one of the things that I was looking at uh, while I was researching some of these topics was why the rich don't give more. And a statistic that stood out was saying that people who are wealthy, who earn over $90,000 a year, give less than the people who earn less than $40,000 a year. 
So the statistic shows that the wealthy give about 1.2 to 1.5% of their income every year, whereas the poor give about 3.5% of their income. Is that something that you have seen while... You know, it's, it's a, it, for me, statistics aside, I think there's a broad generalization when it comes to, to stats. Um, I believe not everything that counts can be counted. Mm-hmm. Uh, so from that standpoint, I think there could be, and, and, and we talked about this uh, earlier, I think there, is, uh, there are various different components. I think people who are poorer... You know, whether they, they give time, whether there is a sense of community, whether there's a sense of belonging and they mobilize around that, whether the wealthy, as you said, might be busy creating more wealth than giving. I think these are these, these are individual, you know, uh, initiatives. I don't think you can club them all and make a generalization. Uh, so I would, I would say the statistics that you've tabled maybe need to be dug into in a more deeper way to understand the nuances of what drives uh, charitable initiatives in key societies and key markets mm-hmm. um, and you know rightfully so a lot of people a lot of people do drive change and maybe want to give as you said uh, down the road mm-hmm. uh, you know so there's a certain postponement of of uh, of material, you know, generosity as in money being given away or philanthropic uh, trusts or foundations being created. Uh, But I think generally people, you know, I think if you simplify it and you wanted to create a sense of hope in this conversation, I think generally people want to be kind. Yes. Whether you're rich or poor, doesn't matter whether you're, you know, gender agnostic, culture agnostic, ethnicity agnostic. People want to give. I think it's a question of knowing how to take those steps and what compassion truly means. Compassion cannot have a dollar value attached to it alone. And I think this is part of the whole journey about learning empathy and kindness doesn't necessarily need to convert into a currency that is purely monetary alone. Mm-hmm. I think you can be compassionate by by making time, by being... Uh, by being there, you can have uh, help groups, you can provide counsel, you can be a mentor. All of these are part of those qualities that I believe defines the best of human beings anyway. And it's a question of amplifying that. Right. That is what I talk about. So what you're saying is give in any which way that you can, whether it's your time, whether it's just helping somebody out, not necessarily with cash. So I, And I feel that a lot of people f- think that I have to give money and and is that what stops them from actually giving anything? I mean, when we start working in a certain field, we start noticing a lot more things in that field that may, we may not be aware of if we were outside of it. So having written this book, have you had experiences that that you found that, yes, more people than you imagined before are giving than what these statistics are saying? I think everybody, whether you're a person or a company, tries to do good. I think where they get distracted or, or you know, they, life hijacks them and they're too busy sorting out their own uh, sort of tactical complexities on a daily basis. I think these are things that are challenging. Mm-hmm. I think people do try and do good. I think we have to, we can't be dystopic about it. I think humanity generally has the ability to create to create miracles when it comes to giving and all the other aspects, whether, and, and it comes back to, it comes back to the culture you create. Right. And I think the culture, whether it is defined by your religious beliefs, your family values, 
values or human values or nuances based around, you know, life aspirations or tragedies. Some people, you know, suffer loss due to cancer and then suddenly want to be able to support those particular initiatives, whether it's cancer research. And I think it's finding a cause that you love and respect and value. Right. which is close to you, right. and then mobilizing in one way or the other. I think these are the sort of simple things one needs to do. I don't think we need to, we, we can't over-intellectualize giving. Right, absolutely. It's personal and you have to Very do true. what feels right to you. True. Um, in the book, you talk about moving to Bali for three months with your family and that had uh, a major impact in the way yeah, you saw was, things. That was the genesis of, of me writing a book. You know, my wife uh, and I, between us, we have, you know, nearly a couple of hundred employees and we have three, four businesses living in Dubai. We have three little children. And, um, you know, there were 99 reasons to say don't go to Bali. One reason to say go to Bali, which was we wanted to just get away and sort of reflect on our lives, see whether we were being good parents, good business people, you know, good to each other. And uh, and moving to Bali, we put our kids in the green school there to study there for three months. And it was quite funny. I had to take my children to a jungle to get them street smart is, wow. is the sort of joke we had yeah. between us. And Because uh, they're protected here. Yeah, then they sort of live cocoon lives as expat kids. And, you mm-hmm. know, and I don't want them to be expat brats. So, so <laughs> we sort of, uh, we went and lived in Bali. And, and, and again, it's a hypocrite's privilege. You know, we could afford to move there. So it's not as if, you know, we were doing something tremendously brave. The, the brave aspect was the fact that we had handed over the keys to our businesses to people within our businesses to see whether everything would survive and it did and uh, in my opinion it was the bravest and most beautiful thing I'd done to be able to go to school every day with my children to be able to find time to uh, um, spend time with my wife to be able to sit and reflect on you know where life has brought me I'm 46 years old and you know I came to Dubai with $200 I borrowed from my mother so I still remember what it feels like to have Mm -hmm. nothing and I started my career from the grassroots here and uh, and that is when I sort of had this minor epiphany which said you know what I don't want to go back to Dubai and continue building you know wonderful luxury brands which don't have the provenance and the values that I have now sort of think are integral to the way I want to create meaning in life. Right. And uh, and that's what prompted me to write the book to sort of challenge the status quo saying, you know, compassion in capitalism is not an oxymoron. Mm. They go hand in, they're not mutually exclusive. Right. It doesn't need the predatorial testosterone injected Wall Street narrative <laughs> about uh, about creating profit and you eat what you kill is the language. If you look at banks like Goldman Sachs and others, uh, in the investment banks in particular, they actually have a category of consumers called debt slaves. There is a, there right. is a, and, and you create products to sell to debt slaves. Wow. Now, so that's if that's the nature of corporations today, I think we have a fundamental bankruptcy of beliefs and values. So we have a bigger issue in our hands. Isn't it humbling, though, uh, when you step back from your business, uh, because every day you wake up, you think, oh, my God, I have this, you know, tons of meetings to attend. How is my office going to run without me? And you just literally believe that everything is going to fall apart the minute you walk out. And when you step back and you take this time off, you realize that things are running and that to me has, at least in my life, given me perspective to say as long as you build things correctly from the foundation, people 
will manage it and you have the time to do the things that you say you want to do. True. And I think, you know, you know, distance is a great way to calibrate objectively and look at the way companies operate. Right. Um, but I think it's also a question of understanding. I think, I think you can't build a temple or a church without an ideology to surround it to attract people to enter it so companies are a bit like that i mm-hmm. think i think if you're if you're an entrepreneur i think you have to your your fundamental mandate is to define your ideology yeah is what do you stand for not what you do mm-hmm. i think if you can define what you stand for then uh, then i believe you will attract the right people in your ecosystem to help whether they are your employees customers etc who will rally behind you and make sure that if you decide to take some time away that you don't fall apart so right. you know so i think having a higher purpose is really important in order to make sure that you can go to work and manage those tactical complexities as i mentioned before whether they are meeting deadlines paying bills achieving budgets you know and all the other pieces that we all end up doing as managers mm-hmm. they happen in a more efficient way but but i think it's important to create uh, you know i like if you talk about an organization yeah um as an etymologist i would i would say, you know if you study the definition of what it means to have an organ or an organization organization is the the fundamental boring definition is the organization of your bookshelf putting things in right. order right right uh but if you look at the difference between an organization and organism mm-hmm. and and i believe if you look at companies as social organisms where there's a certain interdependency between people right so like if you think if you take an analogy of your body your liver whether it's healthy or not is only of value if it has a, if it has if it has a body to live within it right yeah. so, so the, the rest liver, of the organs are healthy and working yeah, and so doing the, the what the liver they have the to. liver has to have a function right it has yeah. a, it needs a healthy body there's no there's no reason for it to exist this is exactly the same principles of what happens in a company so if you have somebody in in your design department or in production etc they have a reason because they have they're serving in a complete ecosystem yeah. so there's what i call the intersubjectivity of human values which needs to be coded in order to create a corporate culture yes. and that and that comes from empathy you can't rule by fear you can't run for a deadline you can't run and say tomorrow i want to achieve a 20% growth on my bottom line or or net profitability i think people don't get attracted to things like that of course you want more meaning in life and i think so the the and it, what a great place to be if you can begin from compassion and you start by saying i'm here to create positive impact yes. not just for yourself as the business owner but also the people around you the people who work for you and yes. i've always said you know stars don't work for idiots they work for other stars so companies need to behave like that and that comes from good human values learning empathy and kindness learning that you can be brave and benevolent simultaneously yeah absolutely and you do talk about you know having that culture within your your organization to mentor and to to create that that environment where people can thrive and that is what you're saying has been the reason for your success is you are thriving because obviously the people that you have around you i'm held hostage every day by other people's moods right so if they decide <laughs> to have a great day they'll i'll have a great day if they decide not to have a great day i'll not have a great day i think i think when you're when you're in that sort of space you know as an entrepreneur you're 
you're, you're perpetually looking at the, the people around you in your organization. And, you know, we make mistakes. We hire the wrong people or the, the right people come to us thinking they're the right for us, but maybe we are wrong for them. So there are many different things, you know, yes. you, that, that happen in an organization where, right. where the human aspect or the human talent needs to be nurtured and mentored. Now, the only thing I've learned is, is you know, if in order to create success, you obviously need to have an ideology. But what you try and do is you you employ high performance people. Mm-hmm. You don't try and establish high performance rules. So you right. have to create a space of empowerment. And there are three stages to that. You know, it's learn, master and change. You know, first, you're, you obviously need to learn how a particular vocation or a business operates. Mm-hmm. You master it. You master what makes a business successful. And then you have an obligation, if you've mastered it, to change it because that's the that's the growth trajectory. Right. So you don't accept the status quo. Yeah. And and from that point of view also, you know, people, whether you're talking about compassion and giving or whether it's about creating success and moving up the ladder in your job, I think you want to employ people who are self starters. Mm-hmm. You know, or rather you want to be surrounded by people who are self starters and, and self starters are the people who have a fire in their belly. Absolutely. What happens if you don't have a fire in your belly? What happens is managers put fire under your feet. And the minute you're putting fire under someone's feet in principle, you're not doing the job you were meant to do yourself. Exactly. You get robots. People just like machines. They come in, they do their job and they they lose the ability to think. Yeah, that's another conversation because I can talk endlessly about how education <laughs> is broken and, and why we are creating again a new generation of robots in a in, in and maybe maybe there's a broader conversation of the fact that education needs to be rebooted also. Uh, but yeah, you know, there, I think I think it's a question of character, not skills. If you have the right people with the right character, you can teach them any skills. Right. If you have a skillful person with the wrong character, you can destroy your business. I I totally agree. One of the things that I read in your book, and this is a term that I was not aware of, which is FOMOSA. I know FOMO, which is a fear of missing out, but FOMOSA is the fear of missing out on something awesome. How is that different? I think I think it's 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 a basically it's wordplay again, isn't it? For most is fear of missing on something something awesome is an amplified version of exactly what FOMO is. But and I think that's more of a, a light-hearted section of the book which talks about how there is a deep-rooted desire for everybody to perpetually be in the know. And this is the tyranny of being hyper-connected perpetually on your mobile phones mm-hmm. to social media and everything else that happens. And I believe, you know, the ultimate destination of luxury is absolute disconnection. Right. In this day and age, absolutely. I mean, but to get people to disconnect, especially the young ones, I have two kids, and, you know, for them going somewhere and not having Wi-Fi is the worst punishment that that they could receive. I mean, they just feel the need to be constantly connected. And I feel somewhere responsible as parents, because we want them to be part of this world. Um, We want them to to know everything that's going on to broaden their mind more than maybe what we were able to do when we were growing up because the world wasn't this small. But we also don't want them to overconsume that information. And that, again, is, is a fine balance. It's a sad state of affairs if, the, you know, the way we are digitally connected, but, you know, from an morally ad- disconnected possibly i think that's that's definitely one part of one of the dimensions of the dis- of the disconnect we have i think we need to have analog lifestyles in a digital world and i think and i think there's a certain there's a certain responsibility as parents we need to sort of you know i i have the same challenges about rationing you know digital time or screen time and uh, and it's and it's sad but at the same time you know 
like everything in life, I think whether it's your business or whether it's your uh, whether it's your 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 consumption habits, you know, if you you plan, I think you you assign time similar to how you you plan your diet. Mm-hmm. You see, what makes a healthy diet is a lot of small meals and an occasional feast. Right. Right. You can't live on feasts every day. Absolutely. I think you can apply the same principles to just about everything you do when it comes to whether it's time on your iPad or time assigned to doing bits of work. You do lots of small things really well mm-hmm. and occasionally you indulge yourself. Right. I think if you can find that balance, then kids are allowed to have, you know, 30 minutes on the iPad. No problem. So that is the common thing that I have heard. It's the overconsumption. It's not the consumption. It's not True. the production. It's just the pace at which we're consuming and how much we're consuming of everything, whether it's products, whether it's, it's uh, you know, electronics, anything and everything. It's, it's everybody now collectively has started over consuming yeah and i think i I don't and i'm not a big believer in this whole movement about minimalism alone this brutal militant minimalism which i can live with one pair of socks and one jacket i don't think that's how life needs to be either absolutely you know i believe in humanism and i think humanism is finding authentic original and meaningful things to be associated with whether it's an artisanal coffee that you've discovered because it's giving money back to a you know a, a, a coffee bean farmer in in the ivory coast or whether it's supporting a local neighborhood i think consume i think if you want to create positive impact consume from companies that exist within a five kilometer radius of you bring the food or, or go to the local neighborhood supermarket a uh, local neighborhood restaurateur's place instead of going to mcdonald's or some large big globalized uh, you know um, restaurant and i think i think it's creating these simple things if you mm-hmm. go back 40 50 years how your grandmother would have behaved when she needed to buy you know groceries for the house she would go to the local market the local farmer would supply the things right. that he'd grown in his in on his piece of batch of land yes i think we need to just simplify these things and i think it is and there is a huge wave happening to was that right now the irony is that if you wanted to be organic then you also got to double your grocery budget because that's one of the challenges things are expensive yes so these are the things that irritate me the thing that we need to drive and the way we will drive this is we have to create more demand for it you know there's a there's a it's the volume yeah you look at look at the irony of the fact right now veganism is on the rise as a concept of uh, you know the next fad of consuming and living a healthy lifestyle so so suddenly avocados are in fashion right so there are restaurants out there consuming maybe a thousand avocados a day mm-hmm. uh, and and there's a it's, it's become fashionable to have poached eggs and avocado on sort of you know granary bread and whatever else but do you also know that currently there is a huge movement happening against avocados where principled restaurateurs who are veganists are saying that we can't support uh, the, the the consumption of avocados in such a in such a fast-paced manner because the avocado farmers in brazil and wherever else are now being um, hijacked by the mafia and the, uh, mm-hmm. the cartels and the cartels control the prices of avocados now so it's a sort of vegan version of cocaine so you know so wow. when you start looking at it yeah. like that yeah. how do you break that cycle of human greed and I think this is this is the sort of and, and I don't think it's a question of finding answers. I think genius comes when you can sit and dwell on the que- on the question longer than others. It's how long you stay with the question, not how quickly you need to find the answer. Well, on that note, if you can summarize for us the two things that we could do today 
to get started on this journey of compassion. Stay positive and give back. Thank you so much. That's Gaurav Sinha talking to us about compassion and in the workplace and in your life. Thank you for being on Unapologetically KK. Thank you for having me. Well, there you have it. I'm sure this has given you some insight on how easy it is to give something back. And if you need to know more, read the book, Compassion Inc. This is Kanchan Kulkarni saying goodbye for now and speak to you again soon.